Greetings, friends. Justin Tarosian here with you again to bring you the very first lesson and podcast for this new quarter's lesson. I'm really excited about this uh, this topic this quarter, Present Truth in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is one of the most amazing books in the Bible, and uh, I'm so excited that we're spending this entire quarter on the book of Deuteronomy and finding present truth in it. So today's or this week's lesson is called Preamble to Deuteronomy. And we're basically laying the the groundwork, the foundation of what has brought us up until the point of the writing of the book of Deuteronomy. So let's bow our heads and pray as we launch in. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word that's a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And Lord, we thank you for the privilege of owning your word and holding it in our hands and studying it and being in a country and a part of the world where we have the freedom to do so together. So Lord, as we dig into your word today, we pray that you would be our teacher and that for those of us who will be teaching what uh, we are studying to others this Sabbath, we pray that your spirit would teach and speak through us in such a way that would make Jesus clear and beautiful as he truly is. Thank you for your love, your mercy, your justice, your fairness, and may we see it more clearly as we study your word, we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. All right, friends, leading up to the book of Deuteronomy, we have basically four books. How in the world do we cover four books of the Bible in 12 to 15 minutes and in one week's lesson? Obviously, we can only do a broad overview, so we're just going to cover a few things. First of all, and um, by the way, Clifford Goldstein wrote this quarter's lesson and it is uh, so well written. I love his writing style. And so I'm going to be actually quoting from it and reading from it more than usual because his words are so well put together. First off, the Bible says in 1 John 4 verse 8, God is love. Now, this is one of the most very profound statements in all of the Bible. And I love what Clifford Goldstein says here. He says, As fallen human beings, with only a few pounds of tissue and chemicals in our heads with which to grasp reality, we just aren't able to comprehend fully what God is love really means. And I completely agree. But the Bible here is just so beautiful, so poignant. It doesn't say that God loves, although we know he does. It doesn't say that he is is, uh, a manifestation of love or he reveals love. Even though those are all true, it says God is love. It's his identity. Uh, To understand this word love in scripture more clearly, it's the word agape. So in Greek, there are four different words for love. And um, the one that has to do with God's love, his perfect love uh, for us, his utter selflessness, his very nature that he can give to us for each other, by the way, is the word agape. So this Greek word agape, this is the significance that it carries. 1 Corinthians 13, that beautiful chapter, often called the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13 verse 5 says, love seeks not its own. In other words, love is not selfish, it's selfless. That is the very nature of agape love. So really, this boils down everything in this great controversy, this battle between good and evil into two categories. You have God, who is love and who is selfless, and then you have the opposite, And that's Satan is the originator of the opposite of love. And often when I ask uh, my church members and and young people, what is the opposite of love? A few answers come. Hate, anger, bitterness. But if love is selflessness, then the opposite of selflessness is selfishness. 
So really, this great controversy, this battle between good and evil, between Christ and his angels and Satan and his angels, can be summarized in two words, love and selfishness. God's kingdom, his principles, his nature, his character is love, whereas Satan's kingdom, his principles, his nature is selfishness. And this is really the entire great controversy, the battle between good and evil, summarized. Now, the idea, the, the realization that God is love helps us to better understand his government and how he rules all of his creation. So God's love permeates chaos and all of the damage and destruction in the world. And it's his very nature. So God loves us and we too are to love God back in return. Deuteronomy 6 verse 5, Jesus quotes it famously. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy strength. So we are to love God in return. And friends, if you're wondering, how can I love God or how can I encourage other people to care and to want to love God? The greatest way, the only way ultimately that love can be awakened in us for God is by beholding his love for us. As we focus on his sacrifice on Calvary, as we read his word and see how he's dealt with those who have gone before us, it awakens love in our hearts back toward him. And so only by love is love awakened. As we behold his love, we come to love him more. We come to really appreciate what he has done for us and desire to love him in return. By the way, this is the opposite of what much of Christianity says Christianity is all about. There's a real me focus in Christianity. God loves me. And yes, that's true. God does love me. God does love you. But our focus in this plan of redemption is not to be on simply on God's love for us and how loved we are. That's important. Don't get me wrong. God's focus in the plan of redemption was us. He's completely selfless and he's focused on us and making eternity possible for us. And Jesus died on the cross for us. But when we become more like God, our focus is not on us, but it's on him. God becomes our focus. We become selfless and more focused on him and loving others with his love. And yeah, this basically lays the foundation. As we know, love cannot be forced. The moment that love is forced, it's no longer love. Because God created us as intelligent, rational beings, and we have the ability to choose to love. But without the choice, love simply cannot exist. And hence, we know this great controversy, the battle between good and evil, began because Lucifer and the fallen angels had the decision of whether or not they were going to love and serve and follow God or not. Because they had that choice, they had the ability, and sin and rebellion was always a possibility. It was going to be a possibility. Now, moving along in human history, we know that, that uh, the fall took place in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were told not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They ate of the fruit, and the fall ended up taking place. When the fall happened, things went from bad to worse, and from worse to even worse, until the Bible says in Genesis 6 verse 5, before the flood, that every intent of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. This is, there is no stronger language that the Bible could use for how depraved humanity was. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That is about as wicked as it could get. And it's almost like God here 
has the onlooking universe. The angels are still in heaven and the ones that have chosen to continue following God, even though they don't fully understand it, they're not, they're a little confused still about Lucifer's claims, if any of them might be true. It's God is saying, look, onlooking universe, unfallen worlds, angels. Satan says that my law is a bad thing. Okay, let's see what planet earth will look like when my law is abandoned by nearly everybody. And looking down on planet earth, they could see that it got so bad that God actually had to destroy humanity, all except for eight people, and basically start over again. What kind of a testament to Lucifer's government and his abandonment of God's law would that have been? The onlooking heavenly beings would have thought, wow, that is really bad. That is messed up. We can see clearly God's law is a protection. It's a blessing. It's a positive thing that we all need. Because look at what happened to humanity when they went without it. Now, as we, as we journey on through after the flood, we see that the Tower of Babel was built and people seem to just continue defying God. Not long after the flood, the Tower of Babel is built. God tells them, spread out over the earth and uh, I will never again destroy the earth with a flood. They seem to not believe that. So they build a tower. They call it Babel, which means gate of the gods. And they try to reach heaven basically and say, look, God can flood the world again, but we're going to survive through it. And rather than spreading out over the earth, like God said, in rebellion, they came to build this tower together. Yeah, listen to this powerful quote, Patriarchs and Prophets, page 119. When the Tower of Babel had been partially completed, a portion of it was occupied as a dwelling place for the builders. Other apartments, splendidly furnished and adorned, were devoted to their idols. The people rejoiced in their success and praised the gods of silver and gold and set themselves against the ruler of heaven and earth. So besides confusing their language, God also scattered the fallen race across the face of the earth. And it was a, a testament to the fact that their idols were nothing. These gods that they worship, these idols that they worship were really nothing. And most of us today, unless you're in the 1040 window uh, where idol worship is uh, a thing, we probably, most of us, and I think probably everyone who's listening to this, doesn't have a physical idol that they worship and bow down to. I never forget being 17 years old. I just graduated from high school. My dad and I were, he does construction and remodeling and we were remodeling a building in a, a fancy neighborhood. It's a suburb of San Francisco, Oakland area called Walnut Creek. And we were remodeling a store that actually the first store we remodeled there had shoes. It was called Foot Candy. <laughs> and they had shoes like high heels, some of them designer, all of them designer high heels, some of them up four or five thousand US dollars a pair. Insane. It was crazy. Right next door, they saw the good work that we did at Foot Candy and uh, this other place owned by some Taiwanese, very nice Taiwanese people who also owned a sushi place down the road. And they'd take us to eat there after we'd work often. And I loved sushi back then. I still love sushi, just not the fish, raw fish part of it. But these people invited us to do some remodeling and hired us to do some remodeling on their place. And uh, they would import clothes from China and sell them in this fancy boutique style shop. And I'll never forget, it was the first time I had ever seen something like this. I walked in one day in the back room and there was a little golden idol, probably half a meter tall. And there was some mangoes in front of it and some incense that they were burning to it. And I thought, wow, I didn't know that people did this. I knew, but as a 17 year old, I had just never fathomed and wrapped my head around something like this happening not far from where I lived. And most of us listening to this here today, we don't 
listen, we don't worship idols, we don't you know, give food to them, etc. But I want you to think, take mental note of your thoughts throughout your day. What does this teach you about the state of your own heart? What does it teach me? Where do my thoughts most naturally go? Do they rise to God? Do they focus on His Word? Do they focus on heavenly things? Or do they focus repeatedly on some of the same things? That can help us reveal, thinking about it intentionally, can help us, help reveal to us what may be the idols that we have in our lives. Moving on past the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, we find Abraham. And really, first he was called Abram. And the call of Abram takes place in Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. Remember, we're doing an overview of the, trying to do an overview of the Bible leading up to the, uh, the book of Deuteronomy. So just flying through together. Genesis 12, 1 to 3, Abram is called by God and God tells him, come out of Ur of the Chaldees. I want you to come out of your homeland, leave your family. Of course, he took his immediate family with him. His father, Terah, came with him as well. But Abram was called out of Ur of the Chaldees. He was called out of his home and God didn't even tell him where he was going. He went out by faith trusting that God would lead him to where he wanted him to be. He promised him, I will make of you a great nation. And so Abram made this beautiful promise. What was the purpose that God had in calling Abram out? What was his purpose in leading him to a promised land where he and his descendants or his descendants would be and they would become very numerous? What was all of this really about? We know when we look at the New Testament that this was beyond the children of Israel. This was beyond just the ethnic group of the the biological descendants of Abram that would be the people of God. The Bible tells us that every descendant of, or every believer in Christ is a descendant of Abraham's by faith. Listen to this. Paul says in Galatians 3 verses 7 to 9, he says, and he explains what God's intentions were in the Old Testament as well as beyond. He says, Therefore, know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. Not just biological descendants of Abraham, only but those who are of faith. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. Now in verse 29 it says, Those who are Christ's are Abraham's seed. So Abraham was called in Genesis chapter 12, and much of the rest of the the book of Genesis is the story of his blood descendants, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and Exodus is basically all of the Israelites, which are his biological descendants. And we see that there's one dysfunctional person and family and situation and messed up family after another, yet still through them, the promise was eventually to be fulfilled, reaching the crucial milestone with the call of Moses in the Old Testament. Now, just to pause before we get to Moses, just to be clear, God's desire was not just to have one ethnic group of people, the descendants of Abraham in the Old Testament. He wanted, and the reason why the Promised Land was at the crossroads of Africa, Asia, and Europe was because God wanted that people to pass through and to say, wow, what is it that you believe? Tell us about the God that you serve. And by the way, this happened for just a little slice of time with King Solomon. People came from afar, Even the queen of Sheba, she even came and said, the half of it was not told to me, truly. So the purpose of God in raising up the children of Israel in the Old Testament was to lead everyone to him, to be a witness to the world, 
not just to stick to themselves as some kind of individual ethnic group that was biased against all other people. No, that wasn't the purpose. Ultimately, not only did God want the whole world to come to know the true character, uh, true nature of his character through his people Israel, the descendants of Abraham, but ultimately Jesus would come through this people group who by faith in him, all people could become descendants of Abraham and essentially children of God. But we find in Exodus that the Israelites were stuck in captivity. They were stuck in slavery in Egypt. And they were there in Egypt. Now, God actually prophesied this. He predicted this. He said to Abraham that this would happen in Genesis chapter 15, that his descendants would be captives in the land. And uh, he even warned, told him how long that this would happen for. But as they were there in Egypt, God had a plan to deliver them. Yes. All right. God's plan was not only to deliver the Israelites from Egypt, but also uh, to reach the rest of the world through them. All right, let's fast forward. The Israelites are delivered and, and then God delivers them miraculously through the 10 plagues in Egypt. The firstborn of every family that doesn't put the blood of the lamb that symbolizes the blood of Jesus on the doorposts, the firstborn of the family is killed. Egypt finally lets his people go, lets the children of Israel go, God's people go, uh, changes his mind, traps them between the Red Sea, two mountain chains, and his armies. And God miraculously, to cut a beautiful, powerful, long story short, God miraculously delivered them through the Red Sea on dry land. Pharaoh's armies were bold and stupid enough to, to chase them after seeing this miracle. And the walls of water came crashing in on them. God released them and they were destroyed. So in all of this amazing drama that that uh, we read in Exodus chapters 1 to 12, 1 to 14. What an experience. And I imagine the impression that it would have made on those who lived through it. Uh, this, yeah, it's no wonder why God says in Exodus 19 verse 4, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. The Lord did this amazing, stunning, dramatic rescue actually taking one nation out of another. He brought the children of Israel out of Egypt. Now, what was the ultimate purpose? Exodus 19 verses 4 to 8. Just before speaking and thundering the words of the Ten Commandments from the top of Sinai, the Bible says that God spoke these words. Exodus 19, 4 through 8 says, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore... If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. God says this to Moses, and Moses proclaims it on his behalf. Then verse 7, so Moses came and called the called for the elders of the people and laid before them all these words which the Lord commanded him. Then all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. So, simple. God calls them out and he's leading them to the promised land. The land that he has promised Abraham that his descendants will inhabit. Now he's leading them back there because they were there for a short time. The Bible says that as 
the promised land was promised to Abraham, it was a picture of the promised land of heaven. We are now sojourning to the promised land of heaven. We will soon have a miraculous exodus, a a deliverance from this planet, from the the captivity of Satan, the attacks of, of Satan that we face here in person. Jesus' second coming will soon be reality. And when it is, we'll be taken to the promised land of heaven. Now, question. What was it that God said they needed to do? And and I guess before that, this is really beautiful. God says that his people would be a special treasure. He says, "I, I want you to be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. So this idea, the word special treasure is actually segula in Hebrew, segula, but it can also be uh, misunderstood. The Israelites didn't have some kind of specialness that came from themselves being holy and righteous in their own natural ability. It was God's grace that was given to them because of the wonderful truths that he had bestowed upon them. Truths that they were to follow as a kingdom of priests and eventually spread to the whole world. God uh, didn't choose the children of Israel because they were better, but rather he wanted his promise to be fulfilled in them and through them for the gospel to go to the world. Now, what are the stipulations that God gave to the covenant, this commitment before he gave the Ten Commandments? The Ten Commandments really are (laughs) their side of the, the covenant. Before he gave them, the children of Israel said, whatever the Lord says, we will do. So, This was the the way that the covenant was committed. Now, later on in Exodus 24, verse 7, the lesson brings out that that, uh, Moses took the book of the covenant and read in the audience of the people. And it says that Moses, basically, he he sprinkled blood on a newly constructed altar. And this was basically a commitment that the people, and after this, again, the people declared that they would obey. Fascinatingly enough, even to this day, I was just watching actually earlier this week, this video popped up in my feed because I was had been doing some research on it. And so on YouTube, there was a video that popped up about an Orthodox Jewish wedding these days. And um, I was interested in this because I've preached a sermon on the ancient Hebrew customs of marriage and how it sheds light on the plan of redemption. And really amazing stuff. When I discovered it, I was really blown away and and decided to preach a few sermons on it. So I watched this video and even to this day, an engaged couple, and actually they're, they're not called engaged, they're called betrothed. Because when you're betrothed to someone like Joseph was to Mary, in Jewish culture, it's like you're married in every way except for the consummation of the marriage. And so you are not yet married, but you actually have to get a certificate of divorce if you want to break off a betrothal. And even to this day, there is a commitment made, and it's a written commitment called a ketubah. And the ketubah is a written covenant entailing what the bride is committing to her groom and what the groom is committing to his bride, with a greater emphasis on what the groom is going to do for his bride. It's a covenant, a covenant commitment of what they're committing to do for each other. Hebrew scholars recognize the Ten Commandments, And this passage we just read in Exodus 19, before the Ten Commandments, where the people say, whatever the Lord says, we will do. And then God's Ten Commandments as listing out the ketubah to his people and his people's covenant, his commitment to them. But sadly, we see, just as we head toward the finish line here, sadly, we see that sacred history shows after this that time and time again, in fact, nearly straight away with the golden calf, 
worshiping it and dancing around it, just in an orgy, like crazy insanity, they had just heard God's voice thundering from Sinai. And yet they abandoned his ways and they apostatized like this. Crazy. They failed at keeping their end of the deal and they contradicted their own words. And so we see that this happened time and time again. But the last verse that we'll look at is the most beautiful and encouraging of all. When God made his covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15 verses 6 to 10, this is what it says. That God told him he would be a massive multitude. His descendants would be a multitude. And and he asked him in Genesis 15 verse 7, he says, oh sorry, 15 verse 8. Verse 7, he says, I'm the Lord. I will give you this land uh, to dwell in with your descendants. Then verse 8, he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? And in verse 9, he says, bring me three, a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite of the other. But he did not cut the birds in two. Now the Bible says that this is what Abraham did. Unless we understand the culture of the time, this is a very gruesome and strange and bizarre thing. But back in Abraham's day, the way that two men would make a covenant with each other is that they would bring together some of their animals. They would cut them in half. They would split the animals' bodies in half with a space between. And the two of them, after they had created the stipulations of the covenant, the two of them together would walk between these carcasses, the sections of the dead animals, to the other side. And it was their way of saying, may this be done to me. May my body be ripped in half like this if I break my end of this covenant. That's a pretty serious pact. That's a pretty serious covenant. But what's fascinating is that when this happened with Abraham and God, it says in verse 12 that a deep sleep fell upon Abraham. He was told basically in the next few verses till verse 16 that his descendants would be in captivity. That happened in Egypt until the iniquity of the Amorites was complete in the promised land. But then in verse 17, it says, And it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. And on the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. What was this? Abraham woke up and he saw and he looked in the dark, a smoking oven and a burning torch. Two different things passing through these animals. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit as well, although the two are mentioned here, are entering into this covenant and promising Abraham, I am going to keep this covenant. And rather than Abraham walking through, because Abraham and his descendants would fail, God himself was the one to walk through, saying, Abraham, I am even going to keep your end of the bargain. I'm going to keep your end of the commitment. And when Jesus became human and he lived a perfect life in 100% agreement and obedience to God's commandments, this was what every human being had failed to do and could not do, what it was impossible for humanity to do. Jesus fulfilled our end of the bargain. And through righteous, through his, through faith in his righteousness, he can accredit that righteousness to us. The children of Israel said, all that the Lord has said we will do. They failed. We may commit and say, God, I'm going to follow your ways perfectly. I can do it. I'm going to do it. But Jesus says, look, you may stumble, you may fall, but I'll accredit to you my perfect obedience, my perfect righteousness. And not only that, 
but I'll then strengthen you with my righteousness to walk in my ways, to live a holy life, to keep my commands so that the covenant can be kept. Friends, what a beautiful God that we serve, that what an amazing God we serve, a fair and a just, and actually, I love how I've heard it once said, that justice means you get what you deserve, mercy means you don't get what you deserve, but grace means that you get what you don't deserve. Praise God for His grace, for His mercies to us, for His blessings. I'm so excited about this lesson on Deuteronomy and what we're going to be studying together this quarter. And I hope that this summary leading us up to the point, just summarizing the history of God's people up until Deuteronomy has been helpful. And I pray that if you're teaching this to someone, and even if you're not planning on it, that God gives you opportunities to share some of the things that we've studied together today with those who may not know, who may not even know Jesus, and who may be trapped in in the confusions of self-righteousness and righteous salvation by works and all of these confused ideas. So God bless you, friends. Let's bow our heads together and pray as we close. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a God who is, was willing to come down, become a human, and keep our end of the covenant. Lord, we just want to accept again by faith Jesus' righteousness, Jesus' perfection, Jesus' perfect obedience to your law. And we realize that you don't, even, you don't only pardon us for the sins of the past, but Jesus' righteousness actually strengthens us to keep your ways to walk in your laws and to enable you to write them on our hearts and write them in our minds. Lord, we love you. We thank you for being a covenant-keeping God. And we pray that you will help us to keep our end of the covenant by faith and with your strength and with the help that you provide us. We love you. We pray that this quarter's study in the book of Deuteronomy as we discover present truth in it would be beautiful, that it would be clear, that it would be powerful, that we'd get a clearer picture of our God who is just, who is righteous, who is fair, who is also loving and selfless and compassionate toward us. Bless each one, we pray. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.